So Parth, uh, if you don't mind my asking, what have you eaten most recently? I haven't eaten anything today. Um, well, I guess last night. I mean, I, I drank like a smoothie this morning. Well, so that's that's something. Well, you drank. But I didn't eat it. Yeah, I drank it. I mean, what did I eat last night? I I ate some Indian food last night. My my ethnic culinary safe place. Whatever. Yeah, but I feel like saying that you didn't eat anything, but not considering the smoothie is kind of madness. Because because like. When a liquid becomes viscous enough, then it becomes like a food. But if it's th- if it's thin enough, then it's a beverage. Well, what did, what have you had, Trent? Before you start ragging on me for um, no real particular reason. Good question. I uh, ate some honey nut Cheerios with almond milk because my parents almond don't. milk. What a what a decision. Yeah, my parents don't buy regular milk anymore, so we're really doing the cows of America a favor. Um, and then I had some some juice. But... I'm I'm not a I'm not a big almond milk guy. Really, I think it's I I was hesitant for years, and then I tried it, and I was like, oh, like no one gets hurt in the process, and it's like sweeter. Well, the almonds do. I know that it's like supposed to be worse for the environment because it requires it? like such a large amount of water to grow almonds. That in the grand scheme of things, we'd rather torture some cow teats. It's more damage in the long run to uh, for the momentary relief of uh, sparing a cow's udder. That's enough of that, I'd say. Also, fans, we have new recording equipment. Don't our voices sound crisp? Well, we had we had new recording equipment for the last one, didn't we? I know, but we didn't break the news. So I, now, su- I suppose that's true. Now it's official. Um, so a week ago, they were just like, wow, Parth sounds good. Mm-hmm. But now they understand why. And it isn't just they, because... It's, it's not just that my, like I finally hit puberty. Parth, when did you hit adolescence? Let's, let's get to the show, shall we? Cut, pro- cut to it's the probably intro. for the best. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week, we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week, we're talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and we were able to interview its assistant editor, Hilton Jamal Day. Um, so, Trent, you want to you wanna t- give a synopsis, this little IMDb sy- synopsis of this yeah, film? Yeah, it's uh, about 12 words long, but I'll read it. Here we go. I like hearing you talk. A young man searches for home in the changing city that seems to have left him behind. Wow, Parth, that's brief. IMDb Mm -hmm. really uh, spared no expense. It's true. They they didn't even mention that the young man is black or that it's in San Francisco, but I guess that's advertised. Yeah, I would say you don't really need to bring that up. Um, Parth, tell me about the budget and box office of this film, if you don't mind. If you just have the information at your disposal, you seem like you would. I I just keep it in the recesses of my mind, Mm -hmm. uh, generally. Um, Well, this had a budget of $2 million and made $4.6 million. Over double its money. Although, in all honesty, it probably didn't make much money because of marketing and stuff. Although, I don't know how much marketing this received. I don't think I saw any commercials for it. I remember seeing a few trailers on Twitter. Parth, it still broke even. It was a good movie. So let's uh, let's give it some credit, okay? Yeah. It was a financial success. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. 
Um, I guess I'll give a production history. That's okay with you. Um, Joe Talbot, who's the director, was a was friends with a guy named Jimmy Fails. They both grew up together in San Francisco and had been wanting to make a movie together since they were teenagers. Um, so they 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 wanted to make a film in the in San Francisco, but there wasn't really like a film scene in that area, um, and they also didn't really know anybody. But um, Talbot ended up sending an email to Barry Jenkins, the director for Moonlight and writer. Um, and he, he got some advice from him. And then they ended up starting a Kickstarter campaign um, and ended up getting $75,000 for it. And that ended up getting them uh, interest from the film industry. Um, and so then they were able to secure funding from um, Plan B Entertainment, um, which is Brad Pitt's production company. And then um, they were able to, in t May 2018, they casted Jonathan Majors, Danny Glover, Tachina Arnold, Rob Morgan, Mike Epps, Finn Whitrock, and Thora Birch, um, as well as Jimmy Fails um, as, the titular, as the main lead. And so Plan B Entertainment was the one that was producing the movie, and then A24 uh, gained the distribution rights to it. So they were the ones in charge of marketing and putting it out in theaters and things. And yeah, and then they they filmed the movie. They there the there was constant demolition and changes to San Francisco as the film production went on, which made it kind of difficult to film. Um, but other than that, they just filmed their movie and then got it made. There you go. Well put, Parth. Thank you. So we got an interview. I'd say we uh, let's uh, let's cut to it. Who's Who it are with, we interviewing Parth? to? Oh, well, well this is we, awkward. We interviewed. Uh, Neither of us know. You know him. You love him. Hilton Jamal Day. Uh, he was the assistant director for this film. And uh, he was a very nice, cool man with a lot of great information. So um, we're gonna we're gonna let him take it away. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Hilton Jamal Day. He's an assistant director who has worked on many films, such as Sorry to Bother You, Black Bear, and for our film for today, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. We're super excited to talk with him today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so we like to start off with all of our guests, just sort of asking what got you interested in film and like where that sort of started. Sure. Um, that is a really incredible story. So uh, my mother was in sales for Kodak in Chicago when I was born. Um, and as I got older, as soon as I was able to talk and walk, I was already making movies and, and stuff. So uh, uh, at a very early age, I was playing with a lot of the equipment that she had around the house. Uh, moving forward into uh, in, in into my life, I started to get really, really interested in post-production and editing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because I was able to be a, at a high school, at James Logan High School in Union City, California. There they had an electronic media production academy um, you're only supposed to be in that academy as a, a senior, but I worked my way in as a junior and a senior. Um, and, uh, uh, I also was able to, uh, 
to take that and move that on into college and join uh, San Francisco State's cinema program. And uh, while I was at State, I, I met a lot of really incredible people and um, it really honed my focus on uh, in, in filmmaking and in post-production especially. Um, so when I graduated from State, I was really, really heavily interested in post-production. Um, and I, uh, I had my own very small company that I was working underneath and uh, I was doing a lot of small jobs from, uh, you know, uh, with, with local companies, local cannabis clubs, music artists, for music videos, small companies I was doing commercials for and um, editing things, wedding videos, things like that. Anything I could get my hands on to do post-production. Um, but it wasn't until I started PAing that I realized how incredible uh, the ADs are on a set and just recognizing how much uh, respect that person commands and how much they're responsible for and how much they um, you know, have to do in a day. And, and uh, between being a PA on all different type of projects and then finally PAing on a, on, a, on a reality show, that actually showed me how much, having the void of an AD showed me how much that was the job that I was even more interested in than post-production, which I had been interested in my entire life. So I, I think that that's really important um, to see how that, how that transformed for me. So by post-production, were you like specializing in like editing? I just find it so interesting that at a young age, you gravi gravitated towards that when most people are either like, I'm going to be the director or I'm going to be the actor and you chose a third option. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I always wanted to direct and, and I always wanted to produce and everything. Yeah, I feel like everybody comes into filmmaking with that mind that they want to be the director, but the more that you work, the real you realize how many jobs there are and how niche specific everything is. And I, I was always blown away by claymation um, and, you know, stop motion animation and, uh, you know, as a kid. And so, you know, seeing a lot of shows like that, I did my own stop motion pieces as a kid with Transformers. I was crazy about Transformers. So, uh, you know, between that and doing other like little secret agent videos with my friend, it was always cool to take our footage. And I felt like we had more fun cutting that footage than we did actually, you know, uh, uh, shooting it and finding different ways. Like, yo, man, like there was nothing we couldn't do. If we didn't have the special effects for something, we would like record ourselves playing a video game to get that part in or find a clip from our favorite movie and splice it into our home movie to make it work. Um, and, you know, I was blown away by that. But it's, it's interesting because everything that I know and I was mainly in into editing, not you know um, video effects or or you know um, coloring or anything like that. But especially cutting was my thing, and um, which is crazy because nowadays they want you to be have way more than just a cutting experience to be a professional editor. You need to know how to do a lot of different things with graphics, um, and it's only when you get to the bigger and you know more complex productions that you are you have those people who are niche specifically just cutting or just doing the graphics for this part you know it's right. much more granular there um but uh for me you know that was what i loved the most and what i realized is that being detail oriented that way and following how what happens on set is going to cut that actually helps me out as an ad because a lot of ad's don't think that way so I'm always thinking about, okay, what we're shooting, like with the director, like, are, should we use time on this shot if it won't cut? Should we use time on this shot if it's not something you love? Every shot should be your master. 
should all these things go into my um, AD process. And a, a lot of that I gained simply from doing a lot of editing work, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like that you were, like you uh, went for like an AD. Um, and so we were wondering, so you've obviously made the jump from PA, which for our listeners is productionist assistant, which is like mm-hmm. kind of the lowest rung um, on, on set. The starting and, point. Yeah. And so uh, we, we have yet to reach that level yet. Um, but um, so we were wondering what that jump was like for you and what that kind of learning curve was like for you. Yeah. So I, like I said, I started off with my own small company and doing things on a, on a, when you have less people, everybody has more responsibility. So I worked right. for a lot of really small shoots and small projects and did a lot of really, you know, groundwork just to get my feet wet. And also when I was in school, I met a lot of people that helped to connect me with folks that I could get hired as a PA. And I worked as a PA for about two years before I ever AD'd actually. I actually, excuse me, in my first year PAing, I actually AD'd twice and didn't really realize is there a small project. Some I had two friends that asked me, one friend asked me to AD his short film and then his friend heard that I did that and, and the other friend told him I was good and said, hey, you should get this guy. So at that point, I didn't really realize that was what I wanted to do. And when I started PAing, you know, like I said, you, you realize on a bigger set with more crew members, how pivotal that AD role is and how they keep everybody coherent on the same page, make sure everything's in communication and legitimately control the set, create the environment for an uh, uh, for the rest of the crew to work in. So working on a whole bunch of different projects as a PA, you know, commercials, music videos, TV shows, and features at all different levels, not just the set PA, but an art PA and, you know, an office PA um, and different, every, every, every area I could get experience in, I did. And um, I ended up getting hired on to Real World season 29. Um, and I did, I was with Real World for like three months. Uh, and in the three months that I was there, I totally realized the void of an AD and what that means to a production when there's somebody who's not specifically there to track time things right. can get out of hand reality is meant to be that way though you're meant to track story and follow story and it's meant to feel as real as possible there's a lot of there's very little interaction between the subject and the crew so um being in that world really you know made me rec- recognize and miss what it meant to work with an ad to work on productions that have an ad so after I worked on Real World, I started to tell all my old producers and uh, production managers like, hey, like, you know, I want to AD. This is what I want to do, um, you know, and I and I feel like I'm ready at this point. So, you know, if there is a small job or something that, you know, that somebody would need an AD, I'm trying to get my feet wet. And, you know, sometimes you tell people that and they don't take you seriously, you know. Um, and this is this is why it's really important when you have an, an, the ability to find a small job where you can take the responsibility of being a key or a head of department on that job, you should do that because you're only going to learn more about that craft. And so my first job was a, a music video uh, that I was hired for uh, by my uh, a good friend of mine, Rose Crane, to be a, uh, a first AD on a music video for this band called uh, Magic Man. And the song was Paris. And it was an ambitious music video because there was a lot of VFX in it. Um, my first job ever getting paid as, a, as an AD, like at full rate. Um, and that was really, really cool. And, and, you know, like I said, I learned a lot 
after that. And beyond that, working on small jobs like that as a first AD, and then also beginning to work my way from the ground up in the in the feature realm, it really kind of got me to where I am now. So I was firsting on smaller projects. And at the same time, I was like key setting on key set PAing on feature films and on TV shows. And, um, you know, I worked my way up from a key set to a second, second AD, to a second AD, to a first AD, which is what I do now primarily. I still second AD every now and again for other first ADs, which I think is really important to do, to learn. But, um, you know, it's really important also to continue to, to excel and to understand, you know, where you're best uh, useful. And I felt like, you know, um, my, uh, my abilities were, 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 were best useful in the first AD slot and, you know, and bringing other people together um, to, to, to make something amazing, you know? And, uh, yeah. So in reference to the last black man in San Francisco or just more generally, what is an AD's, uh, relationship with the director? And can you just describe some of the responsibilities an AD has on set? Sure. Um, from the very beginning, the, the AD is usually brought in once a lot of other things have been figured out. Um, the script should be in a pretty good place. Maybe not the final version, but very close. Um, and you also, um, you know, you may or may not have certain uh, uh, locations figured out as well. But it's really important just to recognize that the AD comes in, he looks at the project, the content, the either, if it's on a commercial job, it's probably like a creative deck or a, or a treatment. And if it's a, a feature, it's the script that they want you to look through, read through, and break down. And um, after you've read it, and then you've, you've read it again, then you can really start to break it down for the first time. Because it's only after then that you can have your conversations with the director and say, okay, this is what I read here. What does this mean to you? How does this translate into imagery? Because somebody can say crowd of people. First thing I'm going to read, and if I read that in a script, I'm like, oh, how many are you thinking? when you say a crowd, you know, all these different things, like, you know, does this, it says that he's writing, is he writing with a pen, a pencil, what, you know, like there's really small things that you can find in a script that um, allude to other uh, elements. So, you know, my, my relationship with the director is really to make sure that I understand the material the same way that they are, that I can share the vision so that I can help to create a world in which that can be realized. And, um, you know, I, I often say, you know, it is it is often common when a director does not get along with the AD because the AD is going to be the devil's advocate every single day and tell you what is possible with the time and money that we've got. Maybe not so much the money. That's usually like a producer that'll tell you that. But the AD can tell you how that time, how that money translates into time and how that time can be managed. And um, it's really important to, to have somebody that you trust so that they're not um, misleading you and how much you can do in a day. Um, and I think that that's a really important part. So in those early stages, the AD lays out the shooting schedule from based on the script breakdown that they create from the script. So first you read the script, you make the breakdown, and then you start to take that breakdown and create a schedule. And then that schedule will go through several preliminary drafts before it's the final version that, you know, we are going to move through and move forward to shoot. And then on set, you 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 now, as the first AD, have the responsibility of executing that plan that you created. 
and it never goes exactly according to plan. I've maybe had one job, one, one movie that ever went completely according to plan. And it was phenomenal that that happened. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, you're, you're a troubleshooter too. When things don't go according to plan, you have to figure out how to make it work because time is money, you know? So in, in recognizing that how important it is to be able to manage time, that's like the biggest thing for an AD is managing time. But I can say the next biggest thing, the most important thing for an AD is to supervise safety measures. Um, safety is key. Um, on any set that you're on, making sure that people can come to a safe working environment and do the things that they need to do, that we've rehearsed and tested every little bit of everything, every stunt, every scene. It's really important to be able to feel good before you press record on the camera. You don't ever want to do anything that has not been proven to work. And so, um, you know, and it's uh, that, that I would say this between safety and time management and being a problem solver. Those are the AD's primary functions. And then uh, beyond that, just communication being the, 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 um, the uh, apex of the communication between everybody. Everybody's going to bring you, all the crew, all the working crew are going to bring all their problems to you. Um, and it is up to you to figure out how they affect everybody else and make sure that that's communicated with the above the line crew, how that translates into money. There's so many different realms that the AD has to navigate. But I would say, the, like I said, most importantly, safety, time, and schedule management, and uh, you know, and communication. Those things are really important, and and, and problem solving. You you just said like um, one of your main functions is creating the schedule, and so I was wondering uh, how close of a working relationship. I mean, obviously, it's all collaborative, but like how how close of a working relationship you have to have with your producer, who kind of has more of an eye on the the financial end of it all sure so so uh with the producer the the producer should be there to uh you know to help you with money management because like i said all of the things that you're spending money on that's going to translate into time and and it's more than just the producer i think it's really important to recognize you know the producer may be like the head of production but all of the keys are the head of that department they all play a pivotal role so you have locations. A lot of those locations may dictate different schedule changes. The casting, actor availability, that's going to dictate a lot of the uh, scheduling. So the producer is mainly there to make sure that these things are happening in the and they're being provided the way that we need them to the best way possible and that we're spending the money that, that is in the budget the best way possible to make our shoot possible. Um, um, and the line producer, not necessarily the main producer, but the line producer is the person that is, you know, like the, the last line of defense on that budget that is literally line item watching how all of this is being spent. And the, the main producers and executive producers are there to approve certain decisions, you know. So there's oftentimes, well, I'll have a situation where, you know, uh, we, we, the, there may be an ask from the director or the client or whoever on whatever kind of job. And I have to, I can't answer that question. And I have to go to the producer to make sure that before I start to make any moves towards this, is this something that you can approve? And, um, you know, that's on every job in different ways. There's always the, the producers like the last, you know, um, excuse me, the, the top of the hierarchy of the of the set where you know even the director answers to them because the director can't do anything without money 
Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's really important to recognize, you know, that relationship that the director and the producer have versus the AD who's taking the vision and taking that money and trying to put them together in a time that can work. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and especially speaking about Last Black Man, we had a phenomenal team uh, of producers um, for, you know, that, that came together to help make that movie possible. I feel like between, there was, there was um, we had three main producers and, a, and an incredible line producer that was phenomenal. And it was just really just interesting just to see how they all had to work together in different realms to make certain things happen. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that had we not had people dedicated and smart and knowing what they were doing, that movie would not have become what it was or gotten to the places that, that, that it went. Because even after my job is done, the producer is there with the director to help push it through post, to get it the distribution and exhibition that it needs to go far and become, you know, something even greater. So, um, you know, recognizing that the producer is going to be there before you show up, during and after if you're an AD. Um, and that person, it, they know a lot more about what's going on than you do. And that is that should be someone that you can go to for support always. Yeah. So as the person who is allotting time for a specific scene, how do you like go about estimating like how long a given scene will take? Is it based on like difficulty or the amount of like moving elements? Because it'd be very hard to predict the amount of takes necessary in order to right to get the product yeah totally so man that's a question and a half uh i will tell you that uh that is a very difficult thing to do and it is a craft um and how you do it it, it really speaks a lot about your method as an ad so for me i don't like to estimate anything i like to get some concrete numbers from the DP, from the director, and from the lighting team, from every department. How long is this going to take? How long do you need to do this? How long is it going to take us to get the arts, the, the set dressed? How long is it going to take to light it? How long is it going to take camera to get set up? And then how long does the director want to rehearse? How much, how long do they want to shoot? How many shots are there and how long do you think it's going to take for each shot? How long is it going to take to switch between shots to turn the room around? These are all things that in scouting in pre-production, like I get into everybody's, you know, uh, all of their information to see. I need to know that before I submit a schedule that is going to literally be a legal document in the future, <laughs> uh, you know, about what the plan is. And it's important to know that all the paperwork is legal. You know, that stuff can come back and bite you if you're not really serious and decisive and, and, and very, um, you know, definitive about what you're putting in that. So I like to, before I estimate anything, I like to take that information, uh, you know, and gather it from the crew, compile it and say, okay, if you need this much time and you need this much time and you need this much time, this is how much time we need really to do that. And then, you know, there may be, oh, that's too little. So we need more. And it's like, okay, cool. Then we can, we can add more, you know, or maybe that's too much. And I'm like, okay, great. That a lot of time you guys gave me, we feel like we can all kind of maybe work at the same time in different ways. Maybe we can shorten that time. Like, cause I always like to submit that, that true, you know, a true compilation of the time. And I don't, and I don't like to guesstimate um, because then if I guesstimate, 
um, you know, accountability is everything. Um, and uh, it's really important to recognize that if I want to have accountability for my schedule, I want to be able to look back and be like, hey, you know, this person told me it would take this long. It's taking longer than that. That's not necessarily my fault. It's not always about fault, but then it's like, all right, I put this much time, we're going over. What do we have to work out to make this work? Now we have to figure out, okay, we're this doing this now either takes away from the next scene or it puts us into overtime. Producer, can we afford that? You know what I'm saying? What what is the what is the the end all goal here? What do we want to do? What is most important to do? What's the top priority? Um, and those are things that you find out in the moment on set. But in the pre-pro, when you do or when you're still in pre-pro, it's important to be as um to make that schedule as realistic as it possibly can be, you know, and and still try to get as much into a shooting day as possible. Um, I it didn't, and to go more into that for features especially, um, it's a rule to try to keep each day to six pages. Um, a six page day is pretty average, give or take. You may have one big scene that's happening on a day, and that's all you're shooting. That's maybe fifteen pages. That may be possible. I've had that happen several times. Um, but, you know, but usually in a six page day, that's several scenes that you can bang out. And, you know, like I say, give or take. It depends on what it is, because you can have a one eighth of a page scene that says car chase ensues and that can take you 30, 30 days. You know, and it's really just important to recognize, like I said, that's where you tap in with your director. Like, OK, this little piece. How many shots is that? You know, it says montage. This is only a small piece of the script, but how many shots is that? How many company moves? How many shots are we going to really put into that? So, you know, there's a lot of information between the script, the shot list, and every other department's breakdown of, of their own, for their own uh, 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 things that they need to do on the set. It, all of those things culminate into what becomes the final schedule. Well, that's great. Um, so sort of to get more specifically into Last Black Man in San Francisco, that's, uh, I think it's incredible that that movie was made for $2 million because um, it just, I, I watched it today and it's gorgeous. It's, just, it's an amazing looking movie that like has, it looks like it costs 10 times that, honestly. And um, so with such a tight budget, that must obviously have been a very tight production schedule. So I'm wondering if you could speak on to what working under those kinds of constraints are like. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Last Black Man. Oh, man, I can tell you that that was the greatest undertaking of my life yet, of my career. Um, because, you know, within, oh, I believe we had 26 shooting days, there's a lot that we had to do in that movie. And also there was so much that we had to create. Um, and there was, it just always felt like time was running away from us. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to do things at that level, sometimes in the early process, you know, you skip things that you, that you will then need later and have to spend more money on later. Um, and, you know, in, in that film, and, and, and during that production, I feel like we did an incredible job of utilizing our time wisely and shooting in ways that we didn't have to spend so much money, but that we got the maximum production value out of what we did choose to do. Um, there was definitely some incredibly difficult days. One of the most difficult days of my life was the day that we shot uh, Jimmy skating down California Street. Um, that particular shot by itself is probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because 
every block between the camera and where he was had to be um, uh, blocked off uh, with an ITC by police officers and PAs. So I had a very massive crew literally for that one shot. And, you know, a lot of those people were, were, they started for that shot and then were done up for the day after that shot. They were literally only needed for that moment. So it's, it's recognizing that, you know, balancing the set, balancing locations, balancing company moves. I feel like, you know, the biggest thing that we tried to do was to group scenes and, and locations all together, which we always try to do, but sometimes it's not always possible. And so there were certain times where we had to do certain things in a location, leave and come back to where that location has been flipped by the art department in, in production design and set dressing to become a different place that we need to shoot again. Um, and that can be really difficult when you're, when you're you know, doing a project like that because you don't always have the luxury of leaving and coming back. So I felt like because it was a completely on location shoot, nothing, none of that was done in the studio. Um, that made it a, a lot more difficult. There's a lot of things that you can control when you're in a, a, a studio space where you have control over everything that's happening there. We were like really shooting in the hood. We were really in Hunter's Point. We were you know, really shooting on California Street during rush hour. You know what I mean? Like there's there's certain things that were, you know, difficult to avoid. And also that our, our director wanted. He really wanted to bring that that real element to the to the shoot. Joe Talbot was really serious about that. Like, I really want to see this part of San Francisco. And it's really important that we show that part for what it really is. And, you know, uh, it, it was definitely difficult to do that. I'm sure that we could have saved money in a lot of places by not shooting in certain areas, you know? Um, and there was definitely uh, some money spent on certain locations that in any other case, you could have just recreated that, uh, in, you know, in a studio. And it's one of those things where the dedication to that made the schedule um, a lot more ambitious. I will say in, in addition to the location uh, constraints and all of the different places that we shot on location, there was a lot of uh, of cast, you know, uh, schedule conflicts that we had to work around as well. Um, so, and especially when you look at the final scene of the, the the climax of that movie, you know, those scenes like that are difficult. They're more difficult than people think. Like when you see a wedding at the end of a movie and everybody's there, like, yo, it's 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 incredibly difficult to get several big name actors into the same room the same time for one day and to want to be there all day. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in managing attitudes and everything, it's all, it's all part of the craft. And I think that all of those things played an incredibly big part in making Last Black Man uh, a very ambitious and difficult shoot. That movie was not easy. Uh, I think I lost like 20 pounds working on that movie, <laughs> just, just running around like crazy trying to get things done. And, um, you know, but I don't regret any of it. It's definitely, it's one of those things where I always, I, I always try to make sure that I am, when I need to be, that I'm at the monitor to see the monitor any, as much as possible. And on during that movie, I was not always able to be right there at the monitor. And when I saw the movie and saw some of the things that we did, it blew me away. Cause I'm just like, ah, oh, I didn't even know that that's what that shot looked like. It was, you know, cause I was over here doing stuff. You know, so, um, you know, I, I am I'm incredibly grateful to have been a part of that. And I'm incredibly thankful to the entire cast and crew 
for what they did to make that movie possible because each and every one of them, I can remember when they put effort into making that what it is. And now it is what it is. And it's amazing. You know? Yeah. I mean, the, the effort shows for sure. Um, and uh, you were speaking about how uh, the, the director really wanted to make sure you got that sort of authenticity with location. And so I'm getting the sense that this was mostly shot on location. Yes. Um, and so if you could speak about whether there were any sets that you had to build um, and what that process is sort of like. Right. So so there we were shooting on location, but there were certain sets that we did have to go into those places and create completely, you know, different uh, sets. So uh, the, the main house itself, man, there was so much that we had to take out of the house and bring in. Um, but the house as it was, was was for the most part exactly how it looks in the movie. However, the thing that you don't see is like down in the front of the house on the street level, there's two garages that are there. Oh. And they completely, yeah, you would never know that there's two garages, but they completely um, covered those garages. With, with the tall um, fence? With a, with a fence and foliage and, and greens and to, to make it look like that was just like the base level. And then when, when we go back to, to the place when it's been renovated, there's a lot of things that you now see and the house is expanded and completely different at the end of the movie. Um, so, you know, it's uh, in a spoiler alert, sorry guys. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, looking at that set, that was a very difficult set to manage because, you know, of course our homeowner was very, very, very um, protective of his property. Um, and, uh, you know, we also, he, we, we were on a time limit, man. He was like, you guys get to be here from this time to this time. And, you know, there's only so much extra that money can buy in those uh, situations. So I am very grateful to him for, for doing that. And, uh, uh, you know, it, more than that, there was also the set that was Montgomery's uh, grandfather's house. That the exterior of that set was the house that was on uh, in, in Bayview Hunters Point on Ennis um, near, near the bay. The interior of that house was on Third Street in Bayview Hunters Point, and um, it was uh, in a, in a much different area than that, and in in a much more dangerous area actually. So shooting there was a bit more of a challenge, just dealing with some of the the, the folks that were around the set and keeping the crew safe while we were shooting there in the middle of the night. Because of course, you know, like when when we do have to do night shoots and whatnot, we want to start in the afternoon and shoot till morning and, you know, doing that in a, in a violent area can be very difficult. Um, you know, uh, uh, more than that, gosh, there, there was so many places that we literally completely created, but that were inside, you know, the, the, the San Francisco area, you know, and it was just, it was really incredible to see what our art department and, um, you know, what set decoration was able to create. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really proud of it because in, in the end result, it all really, you feel the connection between the different places. You can't always tell like, yo, man, this, this room right here is miles away from where we saw it from the outside. Like, you know, that, that happened quite a bit. And, um, I'm just really grateful that, that especially be, because of our art team, because of our G and E team, just lighting things the same way. And because, you know, of, of our cinematographer, we were able to shoot things and connect them in ways that you don't often see in a lot of movies um, or that they don't they don't go to the extent that we did. 
So we uh, took note of some shots that really impressed us and kind of bewild. We couldn't figure out how they were done. So we're going to use you to ask how. Um, sure. The um, the rock fight, there was like an aerial shot, which was really interesting. The downhill skateboarding tracking shot that you mentioned. And then the final like rowing uh, with Jimmy rowing away under the Golden Gate. I feel like there's a lot to say there. Okay, so the rock fight. I can say that was one of my favorite days. That was like day two, I want to say, on set. The rock fight was uh, it was a catapult rig built by our, our key grip. And so it was a catapult or a trebuchet. And on one side of the catapult was the camera here. And uh, literally, we have this, this scene where the kid puts his hand on the camera when it's in one position. And the camera, he pulls and throws the camera and the, the grip team swung the trebuchet over and it came down on another kid just before it, you know, and safely stops before it hits this other guy. I think it comes like right here on the other kid before he gets hit by this rock. Um, and that was one of the funnest things that we had to do because everybody wanted to throw the catapult, you know. And, um, and of course, you know, me as the AD, is, is no matter how much anybody tells me, he's going to be fine underneath the camera. I'm like, well, check it another 10th, 12th time because I don't want that trebuchet to come down and, you know, and do any harm to anybody underneath it. But it was completely safe. Um, yeah. I'm really, really, really proud of our G&E team, man. Like, they, they, they did some amazing things. But that was especially a, a rig built by our key grip. Um, that is Jason Noel on that movie. Um, and uh, so there was that. Then there was the California Street shot. And if I'm not mistaken, they were up on top of the hill. I want to say that's Hyde. But at the top of the hill where Grace Cathedral is, the two intersections that are at the top were blocked off completely. The shot starts with the truck coming around the corner. Every single block on the side that you can't see of that, of that uh, street, there were cops, and, cops for the traffic, PAs for the pedestrians. And we had our skate double who would come in and, 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 and uh, do the skateboarding down. Now he fell twice, I must say. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, where, where the camera was, was maybe 10, 12 blocks. I can't remember exactly how far, but we were way down on Goff. And Goff is quite a several, several blocks away from Grace Cathedral. So um, we were shooting from an intersection there, from the middle of that intersection, shooting on a long lens all the way to Grace Cathedral and watching him come down and just coordinating every time that we had to redo the shot, I had to bleed out the traffic, wait maybe five or 10 minutes for all the traffic to bleed out, make it, wait for it to, to become safe again, lock up everything and then give him another try. And by the third attempt, we got that shot. And I must say that that was, we got that shot literally moments before three o'clock when we were no longer allowed to shoot that shot because rush hour started. So that is, there's so many things about that shot where I'm like, yeah, we did that. You know, like <laughs> very stressful. Oh, you were day. ambitious on this movie. Yeah, totally. You know, right, right, right. You know, um, it was definitely amazing uh, to, to, to get that one in the can. Um, and then um, at the end, uh, what, what, where you see Jimmy rolling, rowing away, that was a, um, a, a boat to boat situation. So we had our, of course, our camera boat. We have another safety boat with divers and, 
and any um, safety personnel in case something goes wrong. And we have our picture boat, which is Jimmy actually rowing. So, um, you know, we actually went out under past the Golden Gate. We had to start um, at a dock that was, you know, on the inner bay and then come out, you know, row, uh, uh, drive all the way out to the uh, just just beyond the Golden Gate Bridge, but before you actually exit the bay. Um, and we shot that right there. And it was um, it was a, a bit of an overcast day. Uh, definitely the water was a little choppier than we wanted it to be, uh, but it was safe enough for us to do what we needed to do. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, before that, uh, before this project, our lead, Jimmy, was not crazy about being in the water or being in a boat or swimming at all. <laughs> so to get this shot was, was very difficult. Of course, he was, um, he had a life jacket on underneath his costume that you can't really see. There's a lot of things that are happening in that shot that were very, very difficult to achieve. And to make sure that our boat doesn't drift, that we're in the perfect position, that the safety boat's just close enough to be out, out of the frame, but still close enough to help. And that Jimmy can then row in the exact direction and go straight through the shot. And the shot that we got was magic, you know? But we were there for most of the better half of uh, the, the better part of six hours to get that shot. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, cause you got to get out there. You got to get everything set up. You need to make sure that you're, you know, in your window time, you have to move out of the way if there's bigger ships coming in. Cause there's a lot of right. big ships that come through there. Um, same thing. If you're shooting in the port of Oakland, you have to like, make sure that, yo, if you're in the water, like the, the big cruise ships are coming in, man. So you, you have to, you know, make sure that we move for that. That was, that was a difficult shot to get. And that was actually our, last day of filming for the uh, principal photography unit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So these, these are all some really beautiful images that you were able to capture. And so one of the questions that we had was um, in general, but also specifically talking about this film, um, are you working off of storyboards specifically? Uh, is, is each shot broken down like that or because this is such a visually meticulous movie. So uh, unfortunately, we did not have the luxury of, of storyboarding every single piece of the movie. I would have loved that, but that is not something that we had uh, the ability to do. And, um, you know, but we did have an extensive shot list. And, um, and this is one thing I, I highly recommend is that you don't do it as you go. It's really important to do it ahead of time and make sure that I can use that information in the schedule. Because if you do shot list or you change the shot list when we're already in the schedule, there's something you might build time around a whole one day in a week, changing the schedule and that changes the whole week, you know? Um, so I will say that, um, you know, it was definitely, uh, like I said, ambitious because Adam Newport Barra, our, our DP, he is a mastermind. Um, and there were certain shots that took a lot more time than others but they were, they were the ones that people remember in that movie. And I'm really glad that we did that, um, uh, that we took the time for those shots. But it was, it was definitely difficult trying to look at our shot list, look at the time needed versus the time allotted and find a common ground where we can you know, get exactly what we needed to get. There's several, there's, there's a, a few parts in the movie that didn't make the final cut that I was like, oh man, some of that work is really gorgeous that people won't see, but it just didn't support the final story. 
you know, um, and, you know, but we, yeah. we, you get it, you get it, but then you feel bad. Like, man, we spent three hours on that night trying to get that piece done, you know, but it's it, in the final, right. in the final product. Um, you know, it's, it's all good. You know, you kind of have to kill your darlings in the name of the final product. You got to kill them. You got to kill them <laughs> relentlessly with no remorse. <laughs> so you also worked on sorry to bother you. Um, IMDb. Yes told me and yes. i was wondering uh it says as a uh, second assistant director and yes, what the distinction is and what was your role on that movie so on sorry to bother you i had the awesome pleasure of being the second ad to brian benson who was not only my first in that movie but also my uh, professor in my producing and financing course at san francisco state he was also the first person to give me a uh, paid PA job. Um, so he's been watching my career as I've grown and he uh, asked me to second for him and I was so excited um, to do it. But I, it's crazy because I didn't know a ton about Boots Riley before that, before I was asked to do that project. And let me tell you that after I heard his name the first time, since then, I done heard Boots' name three, four, five times a day. Um, Boots, Boots Riley came in and changed my whole life, man. Um, and so uh, I, I can say that it was an incredibly different situation from being a first AD on Last Black Man because on Sorry to Bother You, while it's very similar to Last Black Man where we had a lot of you know big name actors, my primary goal was to make sure that those people were taken care of in base camp. Um, and in addition to making sure that the call sheets that were going out each day were perfect. Um, and uh, it's a funny thing that we have, but Brian Benson, because he was my professor, every now and again, he would give me like a grade on my prelim call sheets when I submit them in the middle of the day, he'd give me a grade and send it back. And then he'd show me, he's like, this grade represents how close it is to being exactly what it is supposed to be. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I love Brian to death uh, and I'm really, really grateful for him uh, to to him for bringing me on to that project. It was an incredible undertaking. That movie was no joke. Um, uh, we shot uh, completely in in Oakland, and you know, it's just one of those things where like every single day on that movie, it was something out of this world. Like you know what I mean, and something that like you know when you're doing a comedy of that nature, it's like really dark and really twisted and very unorthodox. And, you know, and the helm of it is, is Boots Riley. You know, his whole directing style is completely out of the box. It's, you know, so it's one of those things right. where I, I appreciate see what that came out of as, like, you know, the product of that movie. However, I, I wasn't seeing that when I was in base camp. My, most of my day was in my trailer at my computer and, you know, constantly running out to make sure actors are going through the works, hair, makeup, costumes are all good, um, you know, and, and any new crew members are being taken care of, the uh, special effects guys, the animatronics team, all those folks are being taken care of that they know what's going on. Um, and, you know, and managing also the second second and the key set and the PAs that were underneath me. There was a lot going on on that movie that I wish I could have seen from the set, but I was mostly just, pushing all of that out of base camp and just hoping to God that it was all happening the way that it need to. 
um, the, excuse me, the way that it needed to. And it's one of those things that every single day, it was always really interesting to hear the things that are happening on set, you know, uh, and, and from, from when you're in the second uh, AD position, you, you have as much responsibility as the first AD because you are essentially doing that role for base camp. You're just not on set. You have to manage base camp, manage time. You need to know how much time it's going to take actors to go through the works, um, how much time it's going to take them to travel to and back from set, um, what, who all is coming on the next day that's going to work, making sure that the call sheet reads perfectly because the call sheet is – Pretty, it's it's a it's a legal document just like the schedule, but it is the wish list of things that you want to do. Whereas the production report done by the second second AD at the end of the day is a report of what actually happened. So um, making sure that the call sheet reads perfectly and that there's not anything missing is really really important because you know that can come back on you having missed a particular element or a particular prop or something that was supposed to be attached to a scene on a on the call sheet. You know, um, although all the other departments have their own breakdown, it's important for you to make sure that everybody on the crew is reminded that this thing is necessary today. Um, and so, you know, being a, a master at creating call sheets is is not easy. Um, it, it definitely takes some serious skill. And although I was the second AD on Sorry to Bother You, I have to give huge credit to my favorite second AD, Dominic Martin, um, who was my second AD on uh, Last Black Man. And Dominic is a much better person in that role than I could ever wish to be. That man is phenomenal and he handles things better than I've ever seen anybody in that role. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just, there's so many things that happen when you're in that realm. You, you might have an actor with a bad attitude or something that happened where that they weren't happy. And recognizing that keeping the actors happy is like your number one goal. There's the call sheet, but then keeping those folks in good spirits is really important because if they're not in good spirits in base camp, they bring that energy to set and that's not something nice to see. So um, you wanna make sure that they can feel good about coming to you with their needs and wants. And um, you know, and that's, like I said, it's not easy. Dominic does it better than me. I feel like I can get, you know, myself a little bit scatterbrained. I'm like, oh crap, he wants this and I'm not sure how we're going to get it. And, you know, but uh, Dominic mm -hmm. does that with, with, with uh, amazing finesse. That man's amazing. You know? Um, so I, I will say, um, I, like I said, it was an honor to do that job with, uh, you know, to, to be in that position on that role. Uh, I'm sorry to bother you just because of all the different people I've met. Um, all, almost all of those actors on that movie, I was crazy about them before I got there. I had to remember to not be starstruck when so-and-so shows up today, um, which, we, which as filmmakers, we should always aspire to not be starstruck. Those people are, they're working with you, you know? Um, so, and, and more than that, just like I said, just making sure everybody was happy. And, uh, and you know, uh, uh, the other thing, one of the greatest things that, I, the, that happened on that job was being able to work with the same team that was responsible for, you know, uh, for the aliens movies, you know, and, and making the creatures for that. Like, it was just crazy. Like when you, oh, when wow, you look at, really? yeah, you know, so it, you know, the guys that were in the, the spoiler alert, but the, the folks that are in the horse suits, you know, those guys, they've done a lot of work. Um, and you know, it's, it's just really incredible when you come across somebody like, yo, you've got some tenure, you know? So I, yeah. you know, and, and recognizing also that you, when you're an AD, everybody's going to come to you looking for answers and 
it's important to recognize uh, how essential it is to be honest when you don't know something. And, um, you know, that's like one of my, biz my biggest pieces of advice I can give to anybody wanting to be an AD. You don't always say that you know if you don't know. You have to let them know, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And that's the attitude that you want to push forward with. Just to sort of start wrapping things up a little bit, um, obviously, uh, we're in we're in new uh, times right now, as strange uh, and exciting times uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. And so we've sort of asked each guest um, how that sort of affected their work. Um, I, I follow your Instagram, so I, I was able to see that you were working on something. Uh, I didn't know what, but uh, so how has that affected uh, your ability to work? Yeah, um, I will definitely say it's been a very slow year. Um, it has been an incredibly slow year. Uh, and it's just been really interesting trying to circumnavigate uh, how to operate around this virus um, and to recognize, you know, everybody's safety is so key. And when you're working with something that is that has so many unknowns, it becomes just more essential just for everybody to be safe as possible. So um, for me, I did not have uh, any work for quite some time. It was like three months before our job came around. Um, and the job that I did do was, um, I can't give too many details about it, but I can tell you that it was incredibly difficult to shoot um, under the constraints that we have with the safety guidelines. But, um, you know, even still, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I feel that there it's so essential to have all of the elements that you need there to have people to oversee those guidelines and to make sure that before you even show up that everything is going to, to happen the right way, that you have all the equipment that you need to keep things safe um, and that everybody's practicing the safety protocol. Um, and, you know, so uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where we live in a world where not everybody thinks exactly the same about their feelings about the virus itself. And, but if you're in a working environment, you need to apply what the rules are. And I think that the biggest and most amazing thing that I noticed is with the crews that I've worked with, uh, is that they have gone over and above the calling of making sure that we do practice those uh, safety guidelines. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where the biggest thing is just recognizing how difficult it is to do a lot of the same things. Keeping six feet from somebody, you know, in, in you know, when you're on a set is really, really difficult because of the things that we're used to doing. You know, you have to move slower. When someone asks for something, okay, before you just run that piece of gear in there, there's so many things that you need to check. So there's a head count issue. Uh, there's a, a crew crew size issue that we have to deal with. There's space and proximity issues. Um, there's dealing with, you know, um, with, with gear being handled by more than one person, how often you have to sanitize something when it's being handed off or transferred to another person, making sure that gear in certain departments is all compartmentalized and not shared or touched by anybody else. Um, it's definitely incredibly difficult. And, uh, you know, my, in my opinion, I, I uh, would myself like to get more safety measures than we even have now, 
you know, uh, to, to make everybody feel even safer. And that's the thing is that I, I think that it's important for us to not rush uh, back into big productions because that's those are the ones that are really waiting to get started. Um, small productions are able to still shoot. Really small productions are really are able to still shoot. That's what I was working on, was a very small production. But there's, um, you know, much bigger productions that require, you know, hundreds of people on a set that that's just literally something we can't do and still keep a blanket of protection from this virus uh, confidently. So right. it's it's one of those things where um, I can tell you that everything is more difficult, everything takes longer, and everything is different. Um, you know, as far as trans transportation, completely different. You really can't have anybody ride with anybody or be picked up by anybody anymore. Um, which creates some serious problems when you're trying to figure out what what to do and how you're going to move stuff around. Um, uh, you know, just just looking at you know the spaces that you're shooting in. Some spaces may not be suitable for the work, considering the guidelines. Like you know, if you're in a certain space, you can't have more than a certain amount of people. And if a job needs for that to happen, then that job shouldn't happen. You know, um, and it's important for us to be honest about that and to recognize how serious it is and to also police each other as far as safety, um, you know, etiquette, making sure that people are washing their hands, making sure that everybody has a mask, a, a well-rated mask, uh, uh, you know, and, and making sure that they're wearing that mask um, uh, properly, making sure that people know how to wear the mask properly, how to put it on properly, how to put on and take off safety gloves. Um, recognizing that anytime that, you know, if there's anybody that's near talent, that then the talent doesn't have a mask, then those people need to be double protected um, with a face shield and a mask and, and even maybe even more protection than that, depending on the situation and the proximity. Um, right. I, I will say that it is almost more trouble than it's worth, than it's worth trying to figure out how to shoot things these days. If it's not incredibly simple, with maybe one actor and a few shots, it's really difficult. And so um, schedules, if it will become longer so that you can allow for the time to do what you really need to do. Um, and everything, like I said, everything just goes slower and it needs to, so that we can make sure that we can apply all of the safety measures. Hmm. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Um, Thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I really appreciate you guys for having me. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, anytime, you know, anytime. And I, and I, and I uh, you know, I encourage anybody listening, if you're interested in being an AD, to start, like you said, with the entry level position of a PA. And, and in that uh, realm, you can see how the entire set operates. You'll get experience with every department. And you'll understand what it really means to be an AD. Because a PA is essentially not only a foot soldier of the crew, but on a feature film, the PAs are in the assistant director's department. Like they belong to that department. So it's, it's just important to recognize that close relationship with the ADs and how you can grow straight into an AD from being a PA. That's fantastic. Um... So that, that, that was our guest for today, uh, Hilton J. Day. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you later. Thank you, guys. Thank you. 
All right. Well, that was a great interview. Thanks to Hilton for talking with us. Um, we hope to talk with him again in the future. Parth, where do we go from here? I, we've had fun. We've had some laughs. Uh, we had an interview with assistant director Hilton Jamal Day. But where where do we go from here? I think should we tell our audience what our what our thoughts are on this movie? Well, eh, fine, we can if you really want to. But I have a thing in like ten minutes. So okay. you, we better keep make it, it make brief. It quick. Yeah. So I hope you don't have too much insight about the film. I have nothing. I have no thoughts. Yeah, and no, it, it was just like two hours of like flashing colors and I didn't really retain much of it. It was basically like the latest installment, in like the Rambo movie where you go in and you pay $12 and you see some explosions and you have a decent time and then you walk out of the theater and you're like, what did I? What did I just do? What was? What did I just financially support? Oh, uh, this is obviously all a joke. Yes. Yes. The last black man in San Francisco, let the record show, was nothing like Rambo: The Last Blood, the latest movie in the Rambo <laughs> franchise. Although I've never seen a Rambo movie, but That's I think it's I I've think only it's fair to assume. I heard the first one's actually like a really profound movie about like about like PTSD. It, it is. And then the rest of them is just Sylvester Stallone like blowing stuff up and like killing people. The second Rambo movie was um, co-written by James Cameron. Um, well, well that's surprising. That and so then that's the one that kind of was like, oh, so Rambo is a big action movie. Um, was it good? Did you see it? I, I don't know. I've never seen it. I've only ever seen the first one. Um, and I really like that. My dad is a really big fan of the Rambo movies. And when he was in college, he had like a poster. Yeah, isn't your dad's middle name Rambo? Uh, it is. Uh, yeah. Rambo. It's actually Rambo First Blood Part 2. Yeah, no, so, I, re- I read that uh, online. It's, it's, it's actually really crazy that his parents, they, they could see into the future that that would be a thing that would happen and that he would be a big fan of it. Not only that that franchise would come, come into existence, but that there, it would be so successful cinematically that there would be like six movies mm-hmm. and that eventually the franchise would conclude with a little feature called Rambo Last Blood and that your father would want to carry that name with him mm-hmm. his entire life. And so Parth, isn't your middle name also Rambo related? Um let's let's I'd rather not get into my own personal stuff. That's kind of invasive. I'd rather not get there. Yeah, um, I, I totally yes, understand. But yes, it is. All right. We'll clear. get into that uh, at a later date. Anyways, what were your initial thoughts on this movie? I, w- I wasn't sure what to expect at all. When I worked at a movie theater last year, um, this movie showed there. And uh, for better or worse, a, a medium amount of people came to see it. And I was like, what is this movie? But everyone who walked out of the theater was absolutely blown away. And then like two weeks later, it was not having screenings anymore. And just like that, it was gone. So when we selected it for the podcast, I was like, finally, my chance to redeem myself. And uh, let me tell you, I understand what all the hype was about. It was absolutely beautiful. The performances were great. And uh, I uh, really enjoyed myself for starters. But I will uh, rip it to smithereens in a moment. Um, I I have a similar opinion. I thought, well, I mean, I guess we can go straight into the direction because I think that's the strongest aspect of the movie. It's it's really, it's amazing that this is uh, Joe Talbot's directorial debut. 
it's it's like this is a director that knows what they want visually it's very specific and there's there's a lot of decisions that feel very controlled and that level of control is not something you like a lot of filmmakers have so it makes me excited for whatever he takes on next i i thought it was a really interesting it moved at a really interesting pace and Mm -hmm. again for a first first time director i feel like a lot of directors kind of move at a little too fast of a pace um because they're not super confident in their ability to hold the audience's attention i think Mm -hmm. um and this kind of does like the opposite of that yeah Uh, it it really takes its time to to a detriment a little bit i think um towards the middle Mm -hmm. i think the pacing kind of falls off a little bit in the second act but i mean i i thoroughly enjoyed it i would say i think visually for the first like 30 minutes of the movie like every shot kind of blew me away and then just because it set the bar so high after that point when it got more into the conversational elements or when it was just like dialogue between characters it was like less stunning but since the it set such a high standard for itself the the middle half of the movie visually I agree felt a little like meandering or left less strong than the bookends only because it made itself look bad by looking so good at, at other times. Yeah. The conversation shots in, in this movie in the second act would be the best shots in any other movie. It's just that comparatively the stuff that they do in the first and third act, I think it's just like the most like standard. I, I thought the blocking for even what should be like mundane shot reverse shot in other movies was really like elegant and unique even like the movie poster where it's uh, jimmy falls in the middle and then his friend to the left of him like that should be rather uneventful but something about it just like really like resonates and it's it's simple yet beautiful that that's like a good thesis statement for um like the visual language of this film. Yeah. And I think like, as you guys heard in our interview, um, they said that they kind of had an emphasis on real life locations. And even if they were building sets, they built them within real locations. And I feel like that's something you can tell. Um, Cause there's a, there's, there's a great like textures to the movie. I think like the production design is really on point. Mm-hmm. I think it really shows off the city in a in a really beautiful way that I've never really seen San Francisco shown. Being it was all shot on location, and it, it just feels like like Lady Bird is a love letter to Sacramento. Feels like this is a love letter to San Francisco. Yeah. While that might be a rather obvious statement, I think it needed to be said. The, the city is a character in this movie, even in like like super fictional, like like Gotham City or. Or, or New York and Spider-Man, like like things like that, where the 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 surroundings are considered an important part of the story itself. I, I'm a really big fan of when movies do that, and this really gave San Francisco a really specific character. I think. So, what would you think about, put broadly, the uh, the plot of the film? I so I I thought it was a really interesting way in revealing information because mm. when you f- i had no idea what this movie was about at all um yeah. imdb I thought, doesn't want you to know 
Yeah, but I mean, I didn't even look that up. I I like completely. I completely went in like cold. Um, and so I thought it might be like some like science fiction like Hancock story of like there is only one man in San Francisco, one black man in San Francisco or something. It's it's, it's more of a metaphor. Yeah, well, that, that's get, what I didn't your, know. Get your head out of the gutter. And so, and so the movie, gentrification part. The movie starts without really exposition at all. Yeah, the first shot is so effective at grabbing your attention, and you pretty much immediately know what it's about. Being the uh, like the young girl, like skipping down the sidewalk, and all of the pollution going on, and. I don't know, the city of San Francisco finally trying to clean up the river they've been polluting for decades because rich white people are moving in. And I think that immediately sets the stage for everything that's going to take place af- like from that point on. It moves really slowly, but it doesn't need to hold your hand. It kind of, it kind of just lets you go on a visual journey with these guys. And it's a really beautiful friendship um, that you kind of get to see them sort of physically um you you can see that relationship in the way that they move with each other the way that they talk with each other and it's it's just really well done i think yeah when you look at the sequence of events on paper like just to refresh my memory i read the wikipedia plot synopsis and it was like pretty brief and i was like huh that was just a few paragraphs but it was like a two-hour movie and it kind of felt like a lot happened while there aren't many like say like plot points there are just a lot of like interesting character moments and i feel like all of the acting is so well done that you like don't mind sitting and just like listening to them talk even if it's doesn't necessarily pertain to the task at hand just because you want to know more about these characters and their relationships and the world they live in and i think a lot of credit has to be given to the actors um for how how they carry the movie i've gotten into the habit of watching the movies we do with subtitles so i can try to appreciate the screenplay a little bit more and i think that this was really smart and witty but not in a way that like drew attention to itself it's it's not a very in your face thing there's a sort of specific group of directors that have a have a really intense visual style but don't impose themselves upon it never gets in the way of the story like i think david fincher somebody like that where mm-hmm. he has a really specific style whenever you see a movie by him you know this is a david fincher movie but you never it's never like he wants to do something really crazy visually and that gets in the way of the movie it's always in service of something and so he never really gets in the way of it. And I felt the same way here. I don't know how to put it other than like artistic directors where they try to like a lot more emphasis is placed on the craft. They can sort of fall into the trap of falling in love with their images a little too much. And this doesn't, I think. And it has really beautiful images to fall in love with. Speaking to your earlier point about the rate at which it revealed information, I guess the biggest, I don't know, twist is that Jimmy's grandfather like didn't actually build the house and it, that was just what he was telling himself um, because it like made it feel like he still belonged there. Um, mm. And I thought that it like made so much sense for his character earlier with uh, like the people on the Segway tour, them saying, oh, this house was built in the 1850s. And then later with the... Uh, the realtor like showing 
like the deed it was like really a slap in the face but they had me fooled it it, it was a good you know red herring i guess it it, it does a really good job of getting you to empathize with them i think that's something movies are kind of uniquely good at is giving like a really subjective point of view and you can you can do that with books too but like there's something about like physically seeing a person go through something versus reading about it it's it's semi-autobiographical yeah uh, of the main actor jimmy fails like life and you really feel sad for him at the end it's 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 really sad watching all this change happen and like him trying to reclaim something that really was never his like one of the best scenes in my opinion when he went to the bank after he saw that it was for sale and he was like talking to the uh talking to the clerk i mean like give me whatever interest rate you have to like give me the worst deal possible i know you're just trying to meet a quota but um i will like pay this off like every month like till i die and it just like showed how much it meant to him you could see that he was on the verge of tears and as an audience member me in particular who rarely uh is triggered emotionally by movies that you have emotions who would have thought um one ones and zeros um but this yeah i thought that was one of the strongest scenes that is one of the strongest scenes i really like the play at the end there are movies that like really straddle a line between being laughable and being serious i think the sixth sense is a good have you seen the sixth sense i have i think that's a movie that like so easily like you do like two things wrong and suddenly it becomes like a joke yes and it's like funny Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, an example. The, the play scene is like an example of like, it could so easily have been ridiculous. And it is kind of ridiculous. It really effectively shows what they're feeling. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of theatricality. So I like it when people have big gestures in movies to show their emotions. I guess I just have a problem with the play scene as how it functions narratively. Okay. You know how earlier in the movie, um the best friend character hands him this like fat script and he's like Mm -hmm. oh that's only part of it i'm writing this play about our friend who just died and we're gonna put on this big old grand performance and i'm an aspiring writer so this is like my life's work up until this point and he's clearly poured his heart into it and so i'm all excited to see what he comes up with and so for the first few minutes where i really liked the trick with him flipping back and forth with uh, like the costume on either side. I thought that was interesting. But then I liked the commentary on like internet death sympathy where all these people who didn't know him were like claiming credit so they could get pat on the back for knowing someone who died. But I just thought he wrote this whole play and then he derails it like five minutes in to confront Jimmy about like their own personal problems and everyone else in the audience must have been like what the fuck is going on and then no wonder that jimmy stormed out and then the rest of the audience followed suit but what happened to that big old script he wrote like you'd think that they would have that discussion on their own time and he would he gathered this respectable crowd this was like their last chance in the house the only place where he can put on a play you'd think he would want to carry that out to its fullest extent. It's a fair criticism. My one other criticism 
while we're while we're nitpicking would be i understand the symbolism of jimmy rowing away like finding he's he's moving on but where's he where's he going and it's a beautiful shot under the golden gate bridge of course but i feel like if he's actually trying to start a new life and leave san francisco a rowboat with none of his possessions like isn't a practical way to go about that. I guess those two things are like the movie moments in the movie, which it's it's generally a movie that like is pretty like plays it straight. It's not trying to be theatrical or in any way. And like the rowboat scene feels more to me like a scene like moving on everybody like out of like a romantic comedy or something like that. It's it's like how they fly off in the car at the end of Greece. It's basically that. Uh, yeah, uh, but Greece is a much better movie. I, I can't I fight hate, you on that. I, I, I hate Greece. Really? I I like the songs in Greece. I Greece has a horrible, horrible message at the end of the movie. Oh yeah, the I guess the message, message is the message is change, change yourself. yourself, change yourself for John Travolta. Wear leather, and then he'll love you. Like if you're a if you're a square, you need to become a a really like leather bound sexy chick you know like you got to change yourself for your man if you ever want to appeal to the male gaze you have to exploit yourself i'm kind of a fan of like sort of leisurely movies that sort of like like top gun is kind of a, i don't know if you've seen top gun no but you can talk top gun I'm, um i'm here for it i i again everybody i love tom cruise um not like you but if any of you have any way of contacting him let me know. Um, but but like movies like Top Gun, even actually Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, for, for large stretches of the movie, there's not really plot. You kind of just continue on with these characters. And when it's done well, it's, it's, it can be really a really cool way to, to sort of get to know characters. Wait, is um, that why you brought up Top Gun? Does Top Gun do that? I brought up Top Gun because it's, Greece is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Greece sucks at the end. Yeah. Um, Top Gun is kind of like that. I didn't re- I, like I wasn't thinking about how Last Black Man and Top Gun are similar. Um, but now that we bring it up, they're kind of similar in that they have their characters do whatever for a long period of time. You, you kind of mm-hmm. just are watching them do things and there's not like a ticking element to it. It's sure. kind of just, OK, we'll go here. We'll, we're, we'll go here. We'll go there. And when a movie can do that well, it's really effective so if you had to sort of summarize like your final thoughts what would you say well i'll say eight out of ten which is the highest rating i've given thus far on this podcast um because i really have trouble finding anything to critique but at this end, obviously, it was very gorgeous. It was an impressive directorial debut. Um, the acting was excellent. It was made for $2 million, which um, really gives me hope in the indie film industry. But it there was something missing. It isn't my new favorite movie, but am I glad I saw it? Absolutely. Um, would I recommend it to someone else? Yes. Um, and is it... An important movie to watch in 2020 amidst our current political uh, situation. Yes, I think now more than ever. I I, will, I pretty much agree with everything you say down to your rating. Um, it's a movie that I mm, do. I love this movie. 
I might. I'm not sure. I, it's like you. I kind of felt like it's not like I'm gonna like. Oh my god, this is amazing, and I need to keep rewatching it or something. Yeah. Um, and it has nothing to do with the pacing. There's lots of slow movies that I like rewatching. I don't know. It doesn't have that oomph factor that some movies do for me. But I agree. It it's just a technically amazing movie. Um, and I think um, I'm you know, happy that and, movies like this. Are, yeah still exist I, I think it's amazing that this movie was made for two million dollars there's 100 million movie 100 million movie 100 million dollar oh movies that don't look this good yes thank you um it's and and like i'd like to see this director take on something like 30 million dollars or something like which that. i'm sure will be his next budget like i like i hope it is because uh, he's shown that with a very small budget they're able to make really amazing visuals and um and it doesn't feel like it's constricted Mm -hmm. um which a lot of like horror movies which are really beautiful but like made on a small budget they'll all take place in enclosed settings and this is a movie that like you can feel the crawlers throughout the city there's these amazing wide shots of the surroundings that look great um but again there's like pacing issues i think yeah i think eight out of ten is a completely fair score it's a great movie i'd recommend it Cool. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. I'd like to thank, uh, once again, uh, Hilton Jamal Day for the interview. It was great. Pleasure talking with them. And Parth, what's our next episode? Do you know? I don't. Um, I believe we're going to be talking with Luca Mosca on John Wick. He was the costume designer for John Wick. He was, he was a really great guy. Really interesting guy. And you'll have to tune in next week to hear all about that.